Now, it has been a challenging year for the church. I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about the church at large. Christians around the country and around the world. Obviously, the challenges caused by COVID are at the forefront of churches trying to figure out how to respond to this situation, also how to get back to doing what the church has always done, which I just talked about with regard to Easter week and, and the announcements. But COVID isn't the only challenge that the church has faced this year. Two prominent leaders in the Christian world were very publicly exposed as hypocrites. Now, this is nothing new in the Christian church, unfortunately. Leaders, and I use that term loosely, leaders in the church have been exposed as hypocrites going all the way back to the beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, we acknowledge this sad reality and know it is one of the reasons that people have a hard time trusting and believing in the message of Jesus Christ. The two men I'm referring to are very different people with very different ministry platforms, but both have been exposed as leading double lives. One sadly filled with numerous sins and failures that has hurt innumerable an innumerable, an innumerable number of people. Has anyone heard of the, the name Carl Lentz? Carl Lentz helped co-found Hillsong New York City, which has been a fast-growing church over the past decade and has also become very popular in the process. In 2014, when the famous Justin Bieber got on his knees and repented of his sins, coming back to the faith of his youth, Carl Lentz was there in the room with him and began mentoring and discipling him. Not surprisingly, Carl's popularity skyrocketed when news of Bieber's conversion became public and fame with it. This fame and notoriety helped him become the chaplain of the New York Knicks, a NBA professional basketball team, and helped his church continue in its meteoric rise in popularity as well. But in November of last year, Hillsong announced that they had fired Carl, for marital unfaithfulness and other sins not acceptable, as they said, for someone in church leadership. A lot of people who looked up to Lentz and his new cool brand of Christianity were hurt, and so was the Christian faith. Our own Skylar Vowell, early in his ministry journey, saw Carl as someone to look up to and as a ministry hero, and was one of those who was deeply disappointed by what transpired last year. Also last year, back in May, Christian evangelist Ravi Zacharias passed away. His passing was sad because for 50 years he had been teaching and training Christians to share Christ and to respond effectively and intelligently to people's objections about Christianity. He and his ministry have impacted millions of people who have read his books and have supported him. However, on the day of his funeral, when he was being lauded and praised as this great man, one woman who claimed to have been sexually abused by Ravi finally had had enough of all the lavish praise. And she posted some details online about her suffering at his hands, asking if anyone else had experienced the same. Not long after, other women began coming forward with their own stories about Ravi's manipulation, his coercion, and abusive behavior towards them as well. Several posthumous, which means after he has passed away, investigations into Ravi's behavior were commissioned and the extent of his sins and wrongdoing was extensive and finally brought to light. I personally know some young men and women in our homeschool Christian speech and debate community who when they graduated college went to work for his ministry 
And they, along with his family and friends and supporters and Christians everywhere, are all heartbroken at what has come to light. Not just because this man that they look up to had this terrible double life, but because so many women had been hurt so badly by him and nobody ever effectively confronted him and stopped it. So there you have it. Carl and Robbie. Exhibit A for re- another reason why Christianity should not be trusted. Unfortunately. Although there were signs. There always are. Carl embracing the stardom and freedom and fame that was being lavished on him during his rise and his time ministering to famous people. Fame is a dangerous thing. Fame and following Jesus Christ do not often mix well. It often leads to pride, and pride will corrode your faith and your trust in the Lord. Ravi being exposed years ago for inflating his academic credentials, which was proven true, was a sign of his flawed character. But people loved Ravi, and his explanation was good enough for them, and they brushed it aside, continued to support him and his ministry. Little did they know that that was just the tip of the iceberg of character flaws and defects that were beneath the surface. These men violated their faith and their leadership positions in the Christian community and were very publicly exposed as hypocrites. And they, like all hypocrites before them, caused great damage to Christianity and to the message of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a good Sunday. No, there's more. This is important because today we are going to see God call out the Old Testament nation of Israel for their hypocrisy as God's people who were not living up to the standard that God had hoped for them. We are continuing our service in our series called The Way Back. And for those of you that don't know, The Way Back is a sermon series from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. All right? And it talks about the different steps that God asked his people Israel to take in response to the grace and salvation he had given them from their enemies and those who had held them captive from their homeland in Israel. These steps, as we've talked about in the past weeks, which you can find online, began with lament, and then fearing God, or excuse me, fearing less, trusting more, and then hope, and then seeking God, and last week, glorifying God. And today's message for the next step on our way back is this. Lose your religion and love the Lord. And today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 58. We let the author Isaiah the prophet lead us through how exactly do we lose our religion and love the Lord here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't, we're going to provide the words on the screen behind me. It's a little lengthy, but I wanted to read the whole thing and I will give a little commentary so we can understand because there's some movement in the narrative in the passage so that we can understand who exactly is talking to who. Isaiah 58. Starts out, Jesus telling Isaiah what to do. Isaiah is Jesus' prophet, or excuse me, God is, Isaiah is God's prophet. God is telling Isaiah to start. Here's what I want you to do, verse one. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. So Isaiah, here's what I want you to do. Now he begins describing Israel and what they've done. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And now he's quoting 
them and their hearts and how they feel about God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? God speaking back to them. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such a fast the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose instead? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke. By the way, the yoke is to oppress poor people, people of less means, to take advantage of them. That's what it means by yoke. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and spreading wickedness. If you pour yourself out for the hungry, and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness And your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, which means abusing the Sabbath rather than honoring it. From doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We're going to get into this, but in summary, what he's saying is, Israel, you must do things differently. And you've got to remember, when you're a religious people with all sorts of religious practices, it is so easy to let those practices become stale and empty by just going through the motions. Some of you know firsthand what I'm talking about. When we do that, we lose the meaning and the proper motive behind them. And that's a dangerous thing that can occur. So this morning, God is calling Israel to pursue a true religion, one that honors him. And he is calling us to do the same. But before they, you and me, we can do that. We need to do what R.E.M. said to do so well in 1991 for you Gen Xers out there. We need to lose our religion. Sorry, guys, that went over your head. Some people got it. All right, he starts out right off the bat in verse 1 with his bold statement that I highlighted. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sins. Boom, sins, transgressions, declare them to them. No softball toss here, 
no equivocation. You, Israel, have sinned, period. Those are hard words to hear. Those are hard words to hear. If you claim to be God's people, right, does not God have the authority and the right to make that statement to you? In verse 3, he shows Israel's true intentions and what the problem was and how their religion was not true. Remember, this is God talking to the Israelites, as I said. Or excuse me, these are Israelites speaking, God quoting what he knows is coming from their hearts. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Isaiah is quoting them and showing how they, the Israelites, regard God. They say they have fasted, but they have fasted expecting God to do something. And when God hasn't done what he's supposed to do, they complain. They challenge God and say, we do this, but you aren't responding the way that you're supposed to. We're going to come back to that. What exactly is fasting? Fasting is the choice to not eat or drink certain foods or beverages or any food or beverage at all for a period of time. All right? You've probably heard of fasting at some level. Presently, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting, which is a popular step towards weight loss and increased health. I've practiced that for periods of time. Some of you have as well, so you know what I'm talking about. Spiritual fasting is different, though. Spiritual fasting is denying yourself food and water for a meal or a day or several days or even several weeks. Not the water part, just the food. Several weeks without water and it's, it's sayonara, okay? But the food part. It creates a discomfort. It creates a thought in your mind, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And food is normally fine and good. It's something that should not be discouraged. But when you said to the Lord, I'm going to go a day without eating, which you can survive, most of you. Some of you have medical issues that you might need to see a doctor before you do that. But during that day, as the latter part of the day or day two comes around, you start thinking all the time, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. And the challenge is, God, I love you more. God, I love you more. God, I love you more. And it's simply a practice to create a vigilance in our lives to allow us to resist the impulses that we have. And that strengthens our resistance to temptation so that when real temptation, powerful temptation comes into our lives, we're able to say no more easily. We're also, our senses for God, they become much sharper and clearer when we fast. If you've not fasted before and you go a day without eating and then you sit down with your Bible that night with your stomach rumbling and you look at the words of the, of the Bible or you pray, I'm pretty sure God will be much more clear to you. That need creates an awareness of him. That's spiritual fasting. Jesus actually commands us to do it in Matthew 6, 16. Fasting, however, can be distorted. It's Again, it's a spiritual practice and used by people with wrong motives. This is what Israel is doing, trying to force God to do what they wanted him to do without really honoring him. They denied themselves food, but did so expecting God to do this. Now, I have fasted over the years and found it to be a very helpful and edifying practice. I've seen God answer prayer. I've seen him give major life direction. I've experienced a closeness to him through fasting. So I'm a pro-fasting guy. I encourage it. But I, like Israel, have done it with the wrong motives as well. When I was younger, back in my Marine days, yes, another Marine story. Folks, there is a limited number of these left, so enjoy them while they're here. When I was a Marine in Hawaii... Being a Christian in the Marines is hard. It's difficult. They hate you because of what you believe. That might be the case where you are right now, but put a bunch of testosterone-filled men with 
little to no inhibition to gather in a barracks and be the one or two Christians there, it gets real. So the Christians who were there would come together. We would encourage each other. We would pray for each other. We'd pray together for our faith and to reach some of the hurting. And the, the, the Marines would be going out just getting themselves drunk. Every night of the week, they didn't have to be uh, on duty. There's real brokenness there as well. And we wanted to just see God help and minister to them. And so we began fasting ourselves for a day or two or three. And usually it was good. But I remember one, one particular time, I wasn't feeling super in tune with God. I thought, maybe I'll fast. And from the moment I started my fast, I knew it was different because instead of not eating, I was playing video games or I was out doing something else. Usually when you fast and don't eat, you replace that eating with a time of prayer or a time of Bible reading, something that engages you with God. But that wasn't the case this time. And day two came around. And I was just still feeling kind of, uh, I wasn't connecting with God. And then I did the thing you never want to do. With about four hours left in my 48-hour fast, I was bored. Should have read my Bible or something. But what did I do? Let's go to the grocery store. <laughs> never go shopping at the grocery store when you're close to 48 hours into a fast. Now, I'm in a barracks room. I've got a little bitty refrigerator. can hardly fit anything. I've got a chow hall that feeds me all that I need or want, as much as I want. But I left there with a shopping cart full of food, roughly $80 to $100 worth of food. And I went back to my barracks. And I was not in a good place spiritually. I think this has become evident. And I'm staring at the clock, the minute hand. And when the minute hand finally struck 48 hours, I went to town. And I ate everything that I had bought at the commissary that day. And God, in his grace and in his generosity towards me, when I was putting that last food item, which, by the way, was a chocolate hostess cupcake, into my mouth with wrappers and boxes sitting on the floor, one of my Christian brothers, Tyler, came through the door unexpectedly and caught me. At the end, he knew I was fasting. And he had that, oh, gotcha look in his face. And I was the, oh, I'm really embarrassed look in my face. But that was God's goodness to me. Because Tyler exposed in that moment to me the reality of the motives behind what I was doing and how they were wrong. God could be a gracious God. He was gracious to Carl by doing what he did. Wish he could have been done better with Robbie. But the Lord's will be done. All right. This happened with Israel. This same motive issue happened with Israel. They became so concerned with upholding fasting and the other laws of Moses in specific areas of worship that they forgot about the God whom Moses loved and adored. Moses loved God. Even though he gave them hundreds of commands to follow, which can feel really arduous and difficult, Moses adored God. Maybe more than anybody else who has walked the earth other than Jesus. Moses and God had a special relationship. And Israel knew that. And yet it didn't matter. And in case you're wondering, this is how God works. Worshiping God is not something where we do something and we demand that he responds in a certain way. God is not a vending machine. God is God. He placed the stars in the sky. He carved out the depths of the ocean. He created this earth and the universe that we know in which we exist. He is not our butler answering to our beck and call. Isaiah is calling their motives into question, and motives are so very important as we talked about with Carl and Ravi. 
In fact, Proverbs 16 verse 2 says this, all a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. And then Isaiah comes straight out and confronts them. And their false religion in the next verse, which with the beginning with the word behold. Verse 4, behold you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Your motives when speaking to the Lord, when seeking after him, are so important. If you wonder why and how so many Christians fall away from their faith, it is so often a result of forgetting what their true motives should be. Why are they following Jesus in the first place? We see this in the first famous hypocrite in the New Testament, that being Judas. Judas was one of the disciples, but he was leading a double life. He enjoyed the fame and notoriety he got with being one of Jesus' followers. But we come to find out that he was actually using that position, not just for fame, but to advance him financially, sneaking money from the ministry and from the donations that were given. This is why checking our motives regularly is so important, because sin often creeps into our lives unnoticed at first, and if unaddressed, it begins to grow, and it grows, and it grows. We have to be so vigilant to not let that sin grow and all of a sudden catch us off guard and lead us to do something that would misrepresent and dishonor our Lord and the faith which we profess. So the first step is this. It's to lose our religion. Lose the empty practices that we think are earning us something from God but are not. That leads us to our second step. And our second step is this. We lose our religion. We pursue true religion. There's another song connected to that, but I don't have the time. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7. This is what Isaiah says. Is not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? What is true religion as he describes it? Loose the bonds of wickedness. Let the oppressed go free. Share your bread with the hungry. And bring the homeless poor into your home. Cover the naked. In the New Testament, the author James, who's the half-brother of Jesus, who writes one of the books in the, in the New Testament, writes this in James 1.27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It says nothing about a ceremonial practice we do here at church. Our lives are busy, and we have so much on our plate with our own lives, with our families, with our work, with our responsibilities, and so on. Here at Rooftop, we acknowledge this. We want to help you engage those in need to help you practice true religion in your daily lives. And what are some of the ways that you can do this? Rooftop supports and encourages service at our local food pantry here in Afton. This is a great way for us to reach out and to connect with folks who have a need and to help distribute foods that already, that's already been donated. The hard work has been done. Simply showing up and loving and serving and encouraging is all we're asked to do. But it's a vibrant ministry and there's a need there to fill we also have an ongoing outreach ministry to the homeless, trying to care for those who have withdrawn from society or who suffer because society has, let them, has left them behind. Or it could just be the down-on-luck person you see out on the street. And rather than just walk past them without a thought, you, we need to stop and say, God, what do you want me to do with this person? 
He might ask you to help him. He might say, not this one. But do we even ask the question when we see a poor person out and about our day? Maybe we should. We probably should. Or the single mom next door who's struggling to make it day to day, who's doing everything she can and she could use help or a break or just a friend or some type of support. Or the immigrant you see in the neighborhood or at school who is just struggling to make it here in their new country. They were sometimes brought here of their desire, sometimes of their, not of their own accord, having in some kind of camp from in another country and having to clear the camp. The U.S. accepts these folks. They're given a check and a place to live for three months and they know nobody. If they're lucky, they have a family member who's come here before. These are wonderful people, wonderful opportunities to reach out, to say hello, to build a friendship. Now, how might you and I do something to help these people to practice true religion? Sign up, volunteer, take the step of action. A couple years ago, our family contacted Oasis International, which is a, a ministry here that we support as a church, three miles down Gravoy towards, um, towards the city. And they try to help immigrants and refugees who are brought to the country but are then left destitute in the months thereafter. We love the ministry, love Mark and Joni who lead it, and so we wanted our family to do that. And so we said, hey, can we be one of the families that meets with and helps an immigrant family? Now, it's hard. They're not us. They're not Americans. They speak a different language. They have a different culture. They have different ways about them. It took some work. But it was all worth it when we were sitting there in the living room, in their apartment, having a conversation with the family through a little broken English. The uh, middle school girl was our translator. That was interesting. But to encourage them, just to pray with them, to let them know, hey, we're glad you're here. It was just, it was a joy. Also, tip, you're not supposed to drink the grounds at the bottom of a Turkish coffee either. That's a freebie, okay? Just put that away for later. What does pursuing true religion require of us? What does it require of you? It could require a little bit of work, a little bit of intentionality, but that's what God wants. The third thing that we see true religion require of us in Isaiah 58 is simple, and it's our final point today. And it's actually the most important thing that God asks us to do, and that is love the Lord. To love Him, to love the Father, to love Jesus, to love God. Ultimately, practicing true religion is about obeying the commandments of God, right? And that might seem crazy with 600 commands. I don't want a God who tells me to do all these things. Oh my gosh, the burden behind that. It's too much. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment that we are to follow? They thought they were going to trip him up because how is he going to pick between the, the big 10 commandments, huh? Is he going to pick a favorite? Jesus knew what they were trying to do. And he sidestepped them. And he said... And I quote from Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38. And he, Jesus, said to him, he quoted from Moses in Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Yes, these are New Testament words, but they were first said by Moses. They were God said to Moses, to his people. From the beginning, God has wanted us to love him with all of our heart. The Israelites of the day of Isaiah, they knew this. They very well knew what Moses had taught. 
but they selectively chose which commands to follow. They chose the ones they liked, they disregarded the ones they didn't in order to create their own false religion. Why should we love the Lord today? For commanded in this great commandment, why should we do this today? We're told this in the book of 1 John 4.19. It says, we love him because he first loved us. And how did God love us? He loved us most clearly and directly when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins, which we will acknowledge here in five days on Good Friday. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but will have eternal life. That's what Josephine was celebrating here earlier. Eternal life. Jesus Christ is the reason we love God. He's the perfect representation of God in human form here on earth. And if you're here today and you don't really know who Jesus Christ is, I invite you with all the fervency that I can reflect to you to take a step to get to know him. You can find out about who Jesus is by reading about his life in the gospel books in the New Testament. You might not know this, but the Bible is not one book. It's a collection of 66 books. Isaiah is one of the Old Testament books. There's a New Testament with books. And the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Any of those books will give you an insight and a beginning to understand who is this Jesus and what was he like and what type of life did he live. In fact, Jesus also hated hypocrisy. And he saved his harshest criticism for the hypocritical leaders, religious, religious leaders of his day. In fact, it was that declaration. It was him not holding back. It was him calling out hypocrisy in his day, using religion as a weapon that ultimately caused him his death on Good Friday. I don't know for sure, but I have a pretty good hunch that Carl and Ravi somewhere along the way forgot about Jesus. They and we along with them become consumed, obsessed with what we can obtain, what we can experience, what we can acquire. And when we do that, when we place any other pursuit in life above pursuing Jesus, we too will begin to forget about Jesus. No one ever just stands pat where they're at. You're either growing or you're forgetting. So how do we love the Lord? Well, by turning our lives over to Him. And that's the truth, but that's not specific enough. What does that mean, Jeremy? When you say turn your life over to Him, what does that mean? Isaiah continues in, in verse in chapter uh, 58, and he gives us some specifics, some actions that we can take. Verse 9, he says, turn to the Lord. And what this means is you're heading in a direction, you know it's not what God wants you to do, you know there's something different. It means actually turning away from that thing, that relationship, that behavior, that thought process, that whatever. Turn away and turn towards what God would want you to do. Christianity, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's based on faith and grace, but the expectation is there's action afterwards, and turning is part of that action. He continues in verse 9. He says, cry out to the Lord. Now, this is hard. Some of you cry out to the Lord very easily. He's your everything all the time, and that's a wonderful thing. Some of us more self-assured people might look at that as weakness. It's actually a great strength. For those of us who are too self-assured, too prideful to cry out to God, to ask Him for help, that's exactly what God asks His followers to do. To acknowledge that we don't have 
it all put together, that we can't keep our lives where we need and want it to be. And so he, he, he wants us to cry out to him, to ask him to come and meet our needs, to save us, to guide us, to provide for us. In verse 10, he tells them to serve the poor. Why? Because that's what Jesus said. Jesus didn't come for the righteous and for the wealthy. He came for the poor and the person who is marginalized. And when we serve the poor, we serve Jesus himself. And in verse 10, he also says, be satisfied in God. Be content. If there's one objective in our world today and in the media and everything going around us, it's to make you discontent with the life that you have. To make you want something else. To make you want something more. To make you want to be different than who you are. Different than who God created you to be. It's a lie. God is telling us to be satisfied and find contentment in him, in who we are, and in what he has given. These are all ways that we love the Lord. By living out our faith and engaging him in intimate relationship. So, this morning, what's our next step on the way back? Our next step is to lose our religion and love the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we we ask right now that you would just shine a light of your love, the light of your holiness, the light of your truth in our own lives. That we would authentically pray and mean the words of this 139th Psalm. When the psalmist says, psalmist says, search our heart, O God, know our anxious thoughts. Know our innermost selves and reveal to us and remove any wickedness that lies within. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to live a false religion. We want to live like Jesus. Thank you for the grace that you show. Thank you for the confrontations that happen, confronting us with our own sinfulness, our own failures. It's not you hating us, it's you loving us. Thank you for the open arms, the grace and the love that you have when we do come to that point of realization and we'll repent that you wrap your arms around us and you love us and you welcome us home. Help us to live our lives in the truth of that moment of being embraced by you with all the grace that could ever be given and the forgiveness that comes with it. Living as Jesus lived. And this week I pray that we'll be thoughtful and mindful of that because this is the week that he lived and loved the most by giving his life for us. Thank you, Jesus.